Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome in to the Howell Stern Wednesday afternoon sports radio show. It's a gloomy Wednesday here in Boulder, but nonetheless, a lot of interesting sports things going on. The Buffs came out with another big win against New Hampshire. They're 3-0 now, undefeated in non-conference play. Talk a little bit about that. UCLA Bruins stumbling a little bit out of the gate. Chip Kelly era in Westwood is not off to a great start. And then we'll talk some Broncos. They got another nice win last weekend. and The, the Denver t- Phillip Lindsay's. The Denver Phillip Lindsay's. Thank you, Chase, for the correction. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a fair name, though, at this point, considering the impact I the Tasmanian so. Devil has had. And then we'll talk about the one Colorado team that's currently still in the playoff race, barely hanging on by a thread, the Colorado Rockies. But first, we're going to give you an update on local sports. Boulder High School had a tough loss last week, and they lost 30-6 to to Denver East. They're now 2-2 two two on the season. Fairview had a nice rebound week after losing to Mountain Vista, or Thunder Ridge, the week before. They won 49-14 against Cardinal Doherty, Doherty and they're 3-1 and one now on the season. But let's talk about the most important team. I think we know that they're superior to everyone right now, the Colorado Buffaloes. 45-14, huge win over the New Hampshire Wildcats. A lot of good things we saw. But I'd like to start with the defense, and specifically the defensive line. Now, they struggled a lot later in, la- later in the later portion of last year. Some may say that they were the sole reason that this team did not get a bowl win last year. And after the season, or Jim, bowl game. Bowl, they didn't get a bowl game. Excuse me. After the season, they fired former defensive line coach Jim Jeffcoat and replaced him with a guy 30 years younger in Kawan Drake, which was a gutsy move, but it, looked like, it looks like it's paid off so far. Yeah, absolutely. This, it looks like a changed defensive line there. There aren't there are a couple changed names on that line, but they just look they just all look like different guys. Javier Edwards, Chris Malumba that coming back from last year, and then Mustafa Johnson, and then Terrence Lang has been one of the most impressive guys for me because he's just a beast out there. He's athletic, he's l- lanky, he's big. He can go up against any offensive lineman and dominate him. He's going to be a guy that forces double teams as he gets older here, and. It's just been impressive what Quandrake has come in and been able to do, bring some energy to this defensive line, and they're playing with a little bit more edge this year. Yeah, you talk a little bit about Terrence Lang, and I want to touch on him too because he's a very intriguing player. Like Leo Jackson last year, they kind of li- I've seen them line him up all over the line. He's lined up a defensive tackle, the nose tackle position a little bit. He's run around in stump packages and um, lined up at linebacker, but with the impact he's shown in limited time, he's going I have to imagine he's going to be hard to keep off the field. Now, going forward, do you think the Buffs use more four defense alignment sets with Malumba and Lang? Uh, I think they really like their outside linebackers, especially mo- moving Drew Lewis there. Yeah. And it, it really just depends on uh, who you're going up against. If it's a team that likes to spread it out a little bit, I think we're going to see the outside linebackers. But if they were to play a team that's a little bit tighter, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but definitely not in the next couple of weeks with ASU and UCLA. Then I think we could see more down linemen. I just don't think we'll, we will see it against a spread offense. Yeah, but it's nice because 
even if they don't use four linemen, they can establish a little bit more mm-hmm. of a rotation. You know, last year I think we saw guys gassed a little bit later on in the season and later on in games when they were out there for 80 or more percent of the snaps. Now we can have a little bit of more rotation, and that'll keep everyone more fresh. You know what I mean? The other defensive side I like in uh, passing situations is when they go two down linemen. It's been uh, Terrence Lang and Mustafa Johnson a lot. And then two outside linebackers, and you get an extra defensive back in there, which has been Ronnie Blackman to kind of stop the pass, and that yeah. that seems to work well. There. He seems kind of limited to the nickel, at least for now, though. He hasn't really lined up outside right, for whatever reason. Right, and he did make a couple mistakes against uh, New Hampshire that popped up on tape, but he is a playmaker in practice. All fall camp, Ronnie Blackman was making picks. He loves to jump routes. He's good in that nickel situation. If you were to put him outside, I think he'd get beat a little bit too often. Now, it hasn't been all rosy for the defensive line. In the first half against Nebraska, they gave up over 200 yards on the ground to the tune of three touchdowns. So it hasn't been all great. We saw flashes. We saw kind of a deja vu of last year, at least in the first half. Now, going forward, I think teams are going to try to test that line. They have a running, a running quarterback in Khalil Tate, another running quarterback next week in Dorian Thompson-Robinson. And they, ha- they face off against some good run games with Washington State and Max Borhe. Um, Utah has Zach Moss. I think they're going to try to test the buffs. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not as worried about the running quarterback this year as I was last year because they have gone up even against... With, even with Adrian Martinez and yeah, how successful he was? Adrian Martinez was successful, but they were able to slow him down the second half. Uh, New Hampshire's quarterback, Lupoli, he, he seemed like he um, could run it a little bit, yeah. and he was getting it out. They weren't playing much QB contain on him, and it seemed like every time he had good protection, he'd just run it because that was the easiest option for him, which was working, but... It, it didn't seem like he was dominating the run game. And even K.J. Carter-Samuels can really run it. He ran the triple option in high school, and he didn't do anything in the run game. So going up against those three quarterbacks have kind of settled my nerves about going up against a running quarterback. Now, a running team that has a really good running back, we have, we have not seen yet. No. And, and that'll be an interesting test for this defense. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit there because I talked to UNH's uh, head PR representative, and he told me Lupoli's not going to run for more than 10, 15 yards. He's not like a bona fide running quarterback. Mm-hmm. KJ Carter Samuels, in limited action at Washington, he didn't really run it a whole lot. I know he ran a little bit in the first game, but he's not hes not a Khalil Tate. He's not like Adrian Martinez. Mm-hmm. I think Dorian Thompson-Robinson, who we'll talk about a little bit later when we preview UCLA, I think he's a little bit more of a running quarterback. Remember, he was ranked higher than um, Adrian Martinez in the dual threat category on both rivals and 27 sports by you guys. I have to imagine Chip Kelly is going to see what he can do with with rolling him out and trying to get some yards on run plays, especially considering their wide receiving core is not too deep, and they only their their best wide receiver is Theo Howard, and then after that it's Caleb Wilson who's a tight end. So I, I have to imagine he's going to try to test them in that regard. And Tate, I know he hasn't really been running a whole lot, which is the big mystery with Arizona. A lot of people are questioning why Kevin Sumlin hasn't really run him, but I, I mean. I don't know. I think both him and Manny Wilkins are going to try to move around a little bit against the Buffs. So it's going to be key for this. I think the biggest key to sustaining the performance for this defensive line is being versatile, understanding that when the quarterback rolls out, you, ca- you can't give him as much time. You can't give him as much space. You have to try to get in the A and B gaps to present running back, prevent running backs from getting up the middle because we saw that against Nebraska, and they don't have a very good running back. So 
I think that's the biggest key t- to their success going forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We're going to find out about this defensive line um, during the Pac-12 portion of the schedule. The other big difference that um, in stopping the run has been Nate Landman. He's yeah. he's an unbelievable player stopping the run. So I think that's we're going to see a big difference there. You know, I'm, you mentioned Landman, and I'm kind of curious to see if they try to play him up front and line him up at the line of scrimmage a little bit more because he's so versatile. He can move sideline to sideline. He can get in the gaps. He We saw him cover and pick a ball off against Nebraska. I, I have to think that they're going to try to use him in – running downs to stop the run. You know what I mean? To try to eliminate that weapon from team's repertoire. I mean, it, I'll be curious. He, he to is that. sort of the LaVisca of the defense. Yes, so it would make sense analogy, to, yeah. to move him around a little bit and just stop the team that they're playing where they need him most. Now, a guy on the offensive side of the ball who's been vital to the buff success is running back Trayvon McMillan. He balled out on Saturday. He had 163 yards and two touchdowns. He showed up. He showed off some explosiveness. But the, the, my concern with McMillan is that he just hasn't been consistent. He had a great game against CSU. I mean, I'll bite. He only had a couple big runs, but he did have a good game on the stat sheet. He had a good game last week. But against Nebraska, he struggled. And something I've noticed just watching him run around a little bit is as a bigger back, he needs more holes on the offensive line. He's not like Kyle Evans who can create space and pick up some yards. He needs – he's a big – he's a bull cow type guy. He has, he has a – extra gear in terms of acceleration. But if he's going to break off big chunk yardage plays, he's going to need some holes from the offensive line. And against Nebraska, we saw the offensive line struggle a whole lot. So how are we going to get McMillan going? Because if I think we can't, if I think, I think if the buffs can get him going, it's going to take some weight off Steven's shoulders and it's going to make them multi, a multi-dimensional offense. And that's harder to game plan for. Right. It's all about opening up holes for him. If they can open up enough holes for McMillan, he is really good in open space and really hard to tackle. But if they're not able to do that, like they weren't able to do against Nebraska, then he's going to be slowed down quite a bit. So it's him, it's all about the offensive line. Now, why was the offensive line struggling so much against Nebraska? I kind of had, I, I know that they were rotating a lot of guys in on the defensive front, but I was kind of confused as to why they were struggling so much because they have some promising pieces there. Brett Tons is good. Tim Lynott is re- the, the two guards, Tons and Lynott, are really good. Colby Purcell, I know he's a little bit younger and he's going to struggle a little bit, but he's pretty good. Kaiser on the left side is a senior. Hagler has been up and down, but he's pretty, he's, he's good. At, he was, he's been good at times. Why have they been struggling so much? In I those think situations? they struggle against Nebraska just because their defensive linemen are bigger, stronger, faster than they are. And we're just able to beat them so many times. You mentioned Tim Lanott, and I think that's, um, that's one of the big reasons why this offensive line has kind of struggled. It's, he doesn't look completely healthy to me. He was getting yeah. beat by a lot of guys um, against New Hampshire. He hasn't looked to be himself. And if he isn't, that's going to be a serious problem for them because he was one of the, their few guys that they knew would be yeah. a starter all year long. And if yeah, he's they're, not, they're counting on him at this point, yeah, I think. Yeah. If he's not to the level that he's played at in years past, then they're going to have some problems. Yeah, for sure. One thing we were talking about going in um, is the tight ends. And I want, to see, I want to see them get involved more. Last year against Arizona, Chris Bounds all of a sudden came out of the blue, literally, and was a huge weapon. He had that huge 43-yard touchdown reception. He had some nice catches along the sidelines. But 
aside from that later on in last season and now into this season, he's absent. And when the Buffs got Darian Jones, I thought he was going to be a weapon, a big mismatch nightmare with a lot of the linebackers and safeties. For some reason, they just haven't been using the tight ends, and I, it's, it's confusing to me. Yeah, I think it's kind of um, two-tone in a way. The one part of it is that the tight ends are just not that good of pass catchers. Both Brady Russell and Chris Bounds are very good blockers, but um, there's not a big reason to utilize them in the pass game. And the other side of that is that they've found ways to use LaVisca Chenault at the tight end spot, and that's just the difference maker. If they have a passing down, he's probably going to be playing tight end. If, he's, if he doesn't have to block, he's going to be in the tight end spot so that they can play their other really good receivers. So they just don't have room for him right now. Are they, are they gonna, are one of, is one of them going to have a surprise game at some point this year, though? Because I feel like if they can get one of those guys going, it'll be huge. For yeah, if, if you get teams to start thinking, hey, we don't have to worry about the tight end, they don't use it, and then all of a sudden you start utilizing it, I think that's a great way to bring them in. But it probably will only be one game. And then on the Darion Jones topic, I, I'm sure if he was ready, we would be able to see him a lot more because he will be a weapon when he's ready. But it just never looked like he was able to pick up the playbook in either spring camp or fall camp, which is a bit of a problem. But he does, if he is able to redshirt this year, only playing four games, then he will have two more years of eligibility where they can use him. Um, but it's a little bit disappointing that we you haven't th- seen him. You think they're going in that direction? Because coming in, he was seen as an instant impact type guy. Mm-hmm. No one thought it was going to take some t- I mean, obviously it's going to take some time for these guys transitioning from JUCO to the D1 level to adapt. I mean, just talking to Mustafa last week, he said it's a big adjustment and it's even bigger from going to high school to college. I know that, but a lot of Buffs fans viewed him as that big red zone target, that Jimmy Graham type guy, obviously not the caliber, but that type of body that they were missing in the middle. So what, what's, what, where's, where's he struggling? Is it just the playbook or is there something else? Yeah, I think it's mostly just picking up the playbook. That's where it looked like to me when we got to watch some of those practices, Bernardi yeah. was always on him about where he's supposed to be and that kind of stuff. And, yeah, a lot of us thought he was going to be a weapon. And maybe they will utilize him because you can have just a couple plays to utilize him in the red zone. Yeah. It seems like That's they, what I'm they like to throw the ball up to Jay McIntyre and Katie Nixon a little bit too much when you can be throwing it up in the end zone to Darion Jones. Yeah. I like utilizing those wide receivers, but maybe not jump balls in the end zone. Yeah, and the other component of that is that if they keep targeting Visca as much as they have in the past, then teams are just going to focus all their resources on him. And I know they have more wide receivers, but he's the staple of their offense. So if they can get another tight end going to take some of the pressure off him, I think that would be huge. Yeah, there, there are a lot of ways you can utilize Darion Jones once that guy's ready. And but, I, I'm looking forward to it. But as it stands right now, the Buffs are sitting atop the Pac-12 South. I know it's only been three non-conference games. I understand that. But they're looking like the team to beat, and the South is looking weak this year. I mean, I was looking at their schedule the other day. I don't think there's one game that they'll definitively lose against a Pac-12 South team. I mean, playing in the desert in Tucson in November is tough. Playing Arizona State. I thought Arizona State was for real. But then they, get, then they lose to San Diego State. I know that's a road game. Winning on the road's tough. But you shouldn't be losing to FCS teams like that. UCLA, I thought they were having some growing pains out of the gate. They lose. To, they get blown out, as a matter of fact, to Fresno State. Utah, I thought, was decent. They gave the game away against Washington. They had every chance to win it. 
What what's going on? I mean, when comparatively speaking, I look at the North. There's three teams that are ranked in the top 20, not just the top 25, the top 20. Out of those teams, two of them have a chance of making the college football player playoff as it stands right now in Washington and Stanford. But what's go? Why is the South struggling so much? They look like an FCS conference compared to the to the North. I think the biggest reason is you have a lot of rookie coaches. You have yeah. Chip Kelly, you have Kevin Sumlin, you have Herm Edwards, and you have a true freshman quarterback at USC. So the the only team that's really put together the same way as it was last year is Utah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's the biggest part of it. You're not going to see a lot of success from a rookie coach. And we've seen in the NFL, too. I know they went 0-7 week one, the rookie yeah. coaches did. And th- that's just part of it. You've got to take some time to implement your system, get your guys, and that kind of stuff. And a lot of people thought Arizona was going to be a lot better than they w- have been this year and I think it's just coach understanding his own quarterback they haven't been able to use Khalil Tate in the dominant ways that we got to see him last year which is why they've struggled a little bit ASU they they just looked kind of lethargic against San Diego State like they weren't ready to play almost like a different team than they were against Michigan State I don't know if that has to do with playing on the road or whatever but um, that team I think is still pretty good it's just a matter of how far can Herm Edwards take him, and yeah. that's the big question for me is I don't really know. But I do think they have a lot of talent on that team. There's two components of that that I want to touch on. One, it seems like for whatever reason Kevin Sumlin is stubborn and has his heart set on making Khalil Tate a pocket passer, which I can't understand why because in college football especially, you have to form your playbook around your players' strengths. I think that's what's allowed Shiverini to have so much success early on in his play calling career is because he forms plays around what his players are good at Mm -hmm. making plays in space, occasionally breaking free for a deep ball, that type of thing. But it seems like someone is set on making Tate something that he's not and running the offense his own way. Chip Kelly is kind of another story in that regard. And we'll talk a lot about UCLA later on, but it's, 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 it's kind of concerning and strange that, Coaches have so much trouble transitioning in their first years. I mean, NFL coaches have adapted better than college ones. Is there something about college that makes it harder? I know you're dealing with younger kids, and it's a very the college game is very different than the NFL. I mean, the quarterback gets plays from the sidelines. There's no huddling. You know, it's it's very it's much quirkier. You see these offenses, air raid offenses, so to speak, where they're throwing the ball over the place, and it's kind of hard to master at the beginning. But what, what's the deal with, with rookie head coaches in college football? I think the biggest part is just not having your own guys. In yeah. college, you're able to recruit your own players. You're able to recruit every single player that you want. And so when you get a new head coaching job, all of those guys have been recruited by different coaches. And yeah, that makes it's sense. It's not like you're, you're retaining most of the assistant coaches from the previous staff. Yeah, so no. There's just... It just takes a while to kind of build these relationships, understand your players, and understanding their strengths. And, you know, what Chev has done here yeah. is he's been here for a few years. He knows these guys' strengths. He's recruited all of the receivers now on the team, I believe. Yeah. And, um, and so you're seeing the benefits of that, whereas these other coaches just don't know their players. As well. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. But as it stands right now, I think the South is the Buffs division to lose. Last year, I didn't say that because early on, 
teams were kind of settling in. This year, I think what we've seen so far from the other teams is kind of what we're going to get. It's more even-keeled in a sense, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, last year, Arizona had Brandon Dawkins at quarterback the first few games. We didn't even see Tate till later on. Utah had a bunch of guys rotating around with Troy Williams, Tyler Huntley, all this stuff. Now, barring an injury, I think that what we've seen from the South so far is pretty much what we're going to get. When I look, just looking at their schedule... UCLA has struggled. Arizona State is a home game. They have some receivers that I think will present a challenge for the Buffs, and they have a decent run game, but I think they could take that on the road. USC hasn't been the team they've been in the year, years past. They have a lot of turn. They've had a lot of turnover, especially at quarter at the quarterback position at wide receiver. Washington, I think, is the only game they'll probably lose, but that's not playing a South team. Oregon State, they're going to win. It's not a South team. Arizona. Like I said, it's in the desert. Late November game, weird stuff happens. Dual threat. And maybe Khalil Tate will have it figured out by then. Yeah, or maybe maybe, maybe Khalil Tate. Kevin yeah. Sumlin will have Khalil Tate figured out. I, th- I think that's a much better way to put it. <laughs> I mean, Sumlin needs to figure out how to play to Tate's strengths. There's no reason to try to force him to be something he's not. I'm kind of confused at that situation. Utah. See, through the first two games of the season, I was like, Utah is the team to beat in the South. They're good. Then they lose to Washington. It looks and it seems like every year they stub their toe a little bit in the middle, so to speak. You know what I mean? They just struggle at certain points. Right, and, and it was hard kind, to of, predict. kind of how they lost to Washington. It wasn't that they lost to Washington. Everyone kind of expected that, but it that whole game it just felt like Utah had a lot of chances to win and they never took them the yeah. entire game. Yeah, they had they had an interception of Browning, the and you know they they just didn't capitalize on anything. They had a couple interceptions, that is. Browning played a pretty bad game. He took a bunch of, like, these huge 15-yard sacks, or, you know, Chris Peterson was rallying about it today. But, you know, nonetheless, they should have won that game, and they didn't. And they, they, you know, there were some calls that didn't go their way. There was a tough call that got their safety. Do you remember his name? No, I don't. Yeah, it's escaping me right now. But, yeah, he got ejected on a questionable call. Some Mm -hmm. things didn't go their way, but a lot did, and they didn't capitalize it. So I'm kind of skeptical at how good they will be. I mean, Washington's a great team, but the fact that they continuously shot themselves in the foot tells me that they're very beatable going forward. So as it stands right now, I don't think there's any reason the Buffs should not win the Pac-12 South. They have all the tools. They have a good offense. They have a good quarterback. Their wide receiving car is core, excuse me, is well above average. They have perhaps the best wide receiver in the nation as it stands right now. Mm-hmm. Their defense is much improved. They have one of the best def- young defensive players in Nate Landman. Delrick Abrams is only going to get better. I think he's in a Akel- Akella Witherspoon type prototype. He's going to be that type of corner for this team going forward. All you need in college football is a couple tools to win a bunch of games, and I think the Buffs have it all. Right. I'm not going to say that it's their division until they go into the Coliseum yeah. and take down USC. Yeah. If they do that, then, yeah, I don't think there's any reason why they wouldn't win this division. What, what I want to so say about that, though, is conceivably they could lose that game and still win the South. Remember, right. USC has two losses already. Um, they lost to Stanford, which is a tough team, and then they lost to Texas, which, while they're ranked right now, they're not, they're not great. So, if... Uh, CU goes into that game 5-0 and and then only loses one more game to Washington, or even if they lose two more games. Remember, the problem with the Pac-12 South is they all beat each other. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They're not losing to other teams. So conceivably, they could still lose to USC. They could lose to Washington, and then they could lose 
one or two more games even. They could, they could be 9-3 and three and still win the South. Mm-hmm. So from that angle, I think that they should, they should, they, they have a very good chance at winning it, and there's no reason that they shouldn't. I completely agree, for sure. But the team that they're playing up against next, we're going to talk about them, and then we're going to get into some pro football and the sport that everyone seems in the Denver area seems to forget about today. Some Colorado Rockies as well, as they're getting set to play. Um, are, we, up. are we gonna preview UCLA a little bit? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go into UCLA. That's the next one. That and then we're gonna talk Broncos and then we're gonna talk Rockies. But the big story coming out of UCLA this week is surrounding quarterback Dorian Thompson Robinson, his father. Which I mean, more and more nowadays, I I feel like recruits families are getting involved in the situation. Like over the summer, I was talking to longtime coaching legend Bucky Waters who was with Duke and UNC for many years. And he told me when he used to go for recruiting visits, I know this is a little bit off topic, but I feel like it kind of pertains to the situation. Mm-hmm. When he would go for recruiting visits, he would sit in a room with a recruit and his family. That's it. Mm-hmm. And he said it was a very personable experience. But he tells me nowadays from what coaches tell him, you go in a room. With, this is not as much true for football, but nonetheless, you go in a room with a recruit, an agent, a lawyer, these big name people are kind of sitting in there, and it's 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 a weird, weird environment. So I, I think in college athletics, we're seeing parents and families and professional people who can make money for the athlete getting more involved. In we, we call them advisors when they're in high school, not not agents. Yeah, well, I mean, for all intents and purposes, their <laughs> their job they're, is they're an agent. Their 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 job. No one let's put will it admit way. it. The, their, their job is to get the player as much revenue as possible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To build on their brand. So for all, maybe if they're called an advisor, but they're effectively an agent in the situation. So I, I don't think I've ever seen a time in college athletics where outside parties are getting involved in the process. But touching on it from Dorian Thompson Robinson's perspective, his father called out Chip Kelly for poor play calling. He said that he can't believe that the guy's getting paid millions of dollars and he's keeping such a secret, secretive environment inside his program where the media is never, ever allowed into practices. They're completely closed, which, I mean, it's the same situation here. Well, it doesn't even sound like it's the media. It sounds like that he's not, Dorian's dad isn't allowed yeah. in, in the practices. So even yeah. parents aren't allowed to go and watch practices. Now, it kind of seems like where the grudge is in yeah. this whole thing because his dad kept on bringing it up. Yeah. Um, and see you or see you are parents of, I, I know that yeah. recruits, the recruits and their family are allowed in, but our parents of current. Yeah. Players. Parents are allowed in there. I mean, a lot of them don't live here, so yeah, it doesn't make sense. sense for them to go, but yeah, whenever they want, even boosters are allowed to send a email and yeah. they can go into any practice they want. So it's a little bit more loose here than what Chip Kelly has. Yeah, th- thank you. That's an excellent clarification, Chase, because when people talk about open and closed practices, they think about the media. The difference between UCLA and and uh, and here, just to clarify, is that at UCLA, nobody's let in. It's mm-hmm. completely closed. Here, just media is going to let, let, let in. Boosters, scouts, many different types of people are let into right. practice here. Just no media members from outside outlets, which I kind of understand. Yeah, the coach it, wants to keep it kind of private. It's only people that see you trust. Yeah. That they'll okay. Yeah. No, no, no. I think, I think that's fair though. From, from an angle. I don't think it's fair that parents aren't allowed into UCLA practice. Right. I could, I could see where Dorian's dad is a little bit um, mad about that. 
But the, the other problem here is that Chip Kelly is keeping this very secretive environment. And this guy's getting paid millions of dollars. And then he calls him out, says he's 4-26 and 26 in his past two, two or three seasons calling NFL games. <laughs> Which I mean is it's 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 true. He's he he had a nightmare right. he had a nightmare season with the 49ers. He and struggled at the back end of his time with the Eagles. But at the same time, this is a guy who accomplished a lot in Oregon. But he, his dad, to his point, he wasn't calling the plays at Oregon. So he kind of took credit for something that he wasn't very involved in, mm-hmm. so to speak. And that's that you know, he's called him out from several different regards. I think that's created turmoil within within the organization. The situation I compared it to when I was talking to someone about this earlier is when I was sitting in science class in 10th grade, mm-hmm. physics, hardest high school science class for most people. I don't know about you. No, me. absolutely. Yeah, yep. kind of to me. Well, we're I, not, we're a, not. I took AP physics senior year and yeah. I, I barely survived. Well, we're guys, we're guys who talk about <laughs> sports for a reason, I guess. But nonetheless, I was sitting in class and I see the principal. I'm completely dazed out, spaced out, confused. We break off to do a group activity. I, see, I hear the principal come in, go up and talk to the teacher and say, you know, this isn't part of the curriculum. You know, this is kind of hard. A lot of students have struggled to pass exams. You know, she, she kind of chews her out a little bit on the side, but I hear <clears throat> tidbits of it. I overhear tidbits of it. After that point, how, how do I trust the teacher to be teaching the right things? How do I get motivated to do the work? You know, I question so many aspects of it, and I kind of think Dorian's a little bit in the same situation, you know, when, and, uh, and a lot of the team members, too. When you hear your coach called out in that type of nature, how do you trust everything that's going on in the program? Do you, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a much bigger organization than that, but is it kind of comparable in that sense? It's, like, hard to trust in his game planning, understand he has everyone's best interest in mind. You just question it a little bit. I can definitely see why... DTR would want to question it because that is his dad saying it. So it's kind of like he sort of has to pick a side. Um, With his other teammates, though, I kind of think it's just left up to their opinion. If they're also kind of on the same side as DTR's dad, which I'm sure a few of them are, then they're probably going to not trust Chip Kelly as much. But there probably are some that are like, that's just some loud parent that likes to hear his voice, like LeVar Ball or something. And I could see some other teammates kind of brushing it off but it puts DTR in, in a really bad position where you have to kind of take your head coach's side or you got to take your dad's side I think it puts some turmoil in that locker room too mm-hmm. because then there's question about if oh DTR is taken out and you know if Wilton Spates back healthy and starts which I don't think should happen by the way I think DTR is the future of the program at the quarterback position yeah but, I was hoping we'd get into that a little bit um according to the practice report today Chip Kelly said that Wilton Spite is day-to-day, so we could see him yeah. in, um, in a week and a half. I'm sure probably with this situation, Chip Kelly is probably leaning the uh, Wilton Spate side just because he doesn't want to deal with yeah. the whole DTR's dad thing. But I could also see why you're already 0-3. If you look at UCLA's schedule, where they have to play and what kind of games they have at home, they might not even get another win this season. Do, do you ever so, – do you think they're – Internally, though, Chip and DTR talked and said, you know, let's build a bridge and get over this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Let's, let's try to move forward as a group because we need each other to win. You know what I mean? There are a lot of coaches I could see doing that. Chip Kelly isn't really one of them. Just yeah. from when I, I obviously an Eagles fan, so I followed him a little bit then. He's just not that much of a player's yeah. coach where 
he he's gonna sit down with his guys and have deep discussions. Um, and he maybe seems, he's a little bit of a change man there, but he seems like he holds a chip on his shoulder in terms of personal relationships. Mm-hmm. We saw during his time in Philadelphia with Deshaun Jackson, where he cut him, cut one of the most talented wideouts in franchise history. He's since gashed the organization every time he's faced them, but mm-hmm. that's beside the point. And traded LaShawn McCoy yeah. to Buffalo for yeah. Kiko Alonso. Yeah. Well, we'll we're, not gonna, we're not going to completely <laughs> get into that, but yeah, I, I know what you're trying to say. It seems like he holds other people accountable and is stubborn in terms of getting over situations. So I'm curious to see how that whole thing plays out. I think DTR is the best option for them. I wonder if you tried to trade DTR for a linebacker. (laughs) Yeah, I know. At this point, I'm kind (laughs) of... Called some other Pac-12 teams. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering about that. But in terms of injuries for the Buffs, I know the the team is not very open about who's hurt and who's not, at least not on Twitter. Um, Chase and I, being at practice every day, we get to get a little bit of an injury update. Still not a whole lot disclosed. Two guys who sat out last week, Juwan Winfrey, Brett Tons. What, what, it's, uh, Winfrey has a hamstring slash ankle injury. Yeah, it's now both. He started the season with a hamstring injury. Um, I'm pretty sure that, that that has pretty much healed. He's now dealing with an ankle injury. That's why he was held out against New Hampshire. Um, all indications are that he's going to be playing next yeah. week, and hopefully he can utilize this bye week to get completely healthy. I really just, I really just want to see Jawan healthy. I know it's going to be, we've been waiting for so yeah, we've long. Yeah, we've been sitting around, and I know you're a big fan of him. But the, what what concerns me about the situation is that hamstring injuries, in many cases, tend to linger. Mm-hmm. We talked, to, we heard Nick Fisher say when he was talking about, you know, before the season, before the CSU game, saying that hamstring injuries take a while to re- recover from, and sometimes you're not out there playing a hundred percent. I believe if Juwan's out there 75%, it'll be good. He'll still be able to make an impact, mm-hmm. especially playing next to a guy like Visca and having some other weapons like Trayvon. Wh- which is KD. what yeah. he's been against CSU in Nebraska. He was around 75-80%. That was yeah. 100% Juwan. Yeah, but Brett, Brett Tons, is he, he's questionable. Yeah, Tons... Um, he's day-to-day right now. Coach McIntyre said that he could have played, but he tweaked it uh, right before the game. And I saw him today walking around fine. He's not in a boot or anything. Yeah. So I do expect him to play. But it looks like they have a little bit of a problem finding the best five on the offensive yeah. line. They rotated that a lot. So, I mean, there could be a situation where he doesn't start, yeah. whether that's health or that Jake Moretti is better or something like that. Yeah. I could definitely see. So um, he should be also good to go. Yeah, he's suffering an ankle injury. Yep, he's. he's and that's awesome. is that why he got taken out of the Nebraska game? Is that you know a lingering mm-hmm. issue? Yeah, that, he injured it against Nebraska and then tried to get healthy for the week and just couldn't. And then who else? So we got Lavisca Chenault. That one's an interesting situation. I yeah. think it's a shoulder sprain to his AC joint. Uh, it looked like it started against Nebraska because. You could tell he was favoring it a little bit, and then he was able to play against New Hampshire, scored that touchdown on the first drive, but um, told Coach Mack that he it was hurt, bothering him a little bit. Coach Mack said, all right, you're yeah. done. They didn't really need him anyway. Yeah, so they didn't need him. Deal. They He only played maybe four or five plays. He was out there for a few different series, but they only put him in there for specific yeah, plays, which play a was a good way to utilize him against New Hampshire. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to. 
complain about that. And props to, but before I let you continue, props to him for playing through that injury. I mean, in the NFL, I remember most recently Jameis Winston sat out two weeks last season with mm-hmm. an AC joint sprain. Now, I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. We don't know the magnitude of the injury, but just the sheer fact that he's able to play through that and perform at a high level is pretty impressive. Right. Yeah. Usually that's like a two to three week injury. So if you if it started at Nebraska, um, it should be pretty close to healed by the time of UCLA, as long as he doesn't need surgery on it, as long yeah. as he doesn't make it any worse than it already is. Um, the other ones, Chris Miller looked pretty healthy against New Hampshire. Um, I wanted to see a little bit more of him than we got to. Yeah, me too. They were really rotating their cornerbacks. Um, but he's he was back out there, which was a good sight to see. And I think Every week he's going to get a little bit healthier, and we're going to see him a little bit more out there on the football field. And then the last one, maybe the best news, is uh, Jalen Jackson will be back next week against UCLA. Yeah. All indications are that he will. he's beginning to do some drills now. He should be full go for practice next week, and he will be back. So that's really nice for that's him. That's excellent. Um, so, um, so, I mean, I'm not just excited for him because of what he's gone through. He tore his two ACLs in high school. He missed all of last season with a broken foot. Then he had another foot injury this year on his metatarsal bone, which is a bone in his foot. It was strained, I believe, and he missed the first three games. But not only am I excited to see him uh, go in from the adverse adversity standpoint after what all he's gone through, I think he's a great football player. I mean, every time I ask Coach Mack about him, his eyes just absolutely light up mm-hmm. with what they've seen and what we've seen in practice as well, too. He's... He's gonna be. He's a lot like KD, but I think he's gonna be the type of player that they just need to get the ball in his hands. Right. He, he has a similar skill set to KD, but they can really utilize him in the slot, which is kind of where we expected to see KD this year. But he's been on the outside every single game, so I think they're really gonna want to utilize him in the slot and take some pressure off of Jay McIntyre, who has been basically the only guy in there. And I think they will have a few plays to get Jalen in space because he is the fastest guy on the team. I, I, I'll make that statement yeah. out clear. They did a, the 10-yard sprints in the offseason. They don't do 40-yard, 10 yards, so they don't get injured. And uh, Jalen had the fastest time on that one. So yeah, I will. he's the fastest guy on the team. He has short and quick range acceleration, which mm-hmm. is so impressive about him. And if they get him the ball in space... I mean, I just have I just have to imagine that Chivarini is going to design several packages to get him the ball. And like Lavisca and KD before the season, he's an unknown. I mean, I don't I don't think teams are going to be game planning for him right away, so they can use that to their advantage. Right. You know what I mean? They can get they can pull these trick plays that they're not going to be ready for, and that can maybe springboard the offense a little bit. I can't wait to see Jalen. Kind of like how they used KD and Visca last season, where they would yeah. bring him in for a play or two each game and it seemed like they make a play every time they were on the field. Yeah. I think we're going to see the same thing. But moving on from the Buffs now and getting into the Broncos, we're going to talk about Phil and we're going to talk about the most recent win and then we'll get into the baseball team here in Colorado. I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners have forgot they they even exist at this point, but they are a game and a half out of first place and a game out of the wild card. They're standing pretty well right now despite the recent stretch, but starting off with the Broncos, they pulled out a huge win at the last second last weekend against Oakland, winning 20 to 19 on a game-winning field goal by Brandon McManus. That's a huge win, but like the Buffs, Broncos started off 2 and 0 last year and then they struggled. 
They finished the season, I believe, five and eleven, six and ten, five mm-hmm. and eleven. I think. Yeah, I think it was five. And 11. Yeah, but n- nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is that they came out strong last year and struggled. This year's team, I think, I just feel like there's a very di- different atmosphere and a different vibe in that locker room. And I think that vibe is Philip Lindsay. I think yeah. he's a he's a game changer for you on the football field and in the locker room. He he just motivates these guys in a different way. He gets yeah. in there. He shows off his work ethic, the way he works at practice, the way he gets in there early. He was always the first guy in the building when he was here. Yeah. He'd get there. He'd try to get there before even Coach McIntyre gets there. So yeah. That kind of stuff wears off on your teammates, and I think that that could be the reason why this team looks a little bit different. Uh, I don't know how much better of a season they will have. I know they probably won't have an eight-game losing streak like they did yeah. last year. I think they'll probably avoid something like that and then stay around the 500 range. But talking about Phil, we've seen, we saw him literally jumpstart the offense last week, and they were struggling out of the gate through their first three drives. All of a sudden, he pulls off a 53-yard run, and it's like a change. It's a complete change in the outlook of the game. I love how they're using him so far. You know, they're, one of the things that's nice is they're not, they're not over-utilizing him in terms of giving him carries, but they're finding ways and good situations down in distances, that type of thing, to allow him to carry the football. Because I think that's what he's the, he, he's the best at. He's a good receiving running back, but ultimately he's going to bring that Darren Sproles-type change of pace where you can give him the rock 10, 15 times a game out, straight out of the backfield, let him make some plays. His first game he eclipsed 100 yards on the ground, and then on his second he had 74 yards. So he's already on pace to rush for over 1,000 yards on the season. He's, I love how they're utilizing him. Uh, head coach Vance Joseph said earlier this week that they're not going to list him as the starter, but who cares? Because you can use both of your guys. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's not like if you list Royce as your starter, Phil can't get more carries. And maybe you just want to show off Royce right away and then keep teams off balance by bringing in Phil later on. Right. And that one 30 to 40-yard run by Phil is just the thing of beauty. The way he just yeah. keeps going at the same speed but is making cuts Yeah. and then gets out in the open field and nobody can catch him. I mean, that was pretty much something that we – didn't see here at even CU that type of fast cut I don't know how he was able to add that into his arsenal but that thing is unbelievable and really difficult to tackle he's in the air moving side to side at the same speed that he was already going it's amazing isn't it I mean the thing is I don't think he was really forced to use that as much Mm -hmm. during his time at CU I think he was more of a you know straight line runner guy right. because playing in college football is different you know he'd cut it out to the outside right in, in college football you can kind of slow it down and make him miss whereas in NFL you just got to keep going yeah it's amazing but one guy who's not getting nearly enough credit I think at least is Bradley Chubb everyone expected him to be a great Khalil Mack type player out of the gate and he hasn't but he's opened up so many holes for Von Miller, who currently has four sacks, which is leading the NFL. And he had five tackles last weekend. Chubb also had three tackles, and two, were, two of them were solo. I think he's, he's helping Von Miller as like a sidekick type guy. You know what I mean? I think he's helping open up some coverage on the offensive line for him. And that's going to be huge going forward to pressure the quarterback. Because there were times when t- last year when teams would just double Von. And that would pre- prevent, uh, you know, that would present problems to him. Yeah, and now you throw in Bradley Chubb and it makes it a lot more of a d- difficult decision to try to double bond because you got Bradley Chubb on the other side who can make plays as well. And that uh, credit to the Broncos, they weren't, 
you know, like dead focused on taking a quarterback in that yeah. draft. They were ready to take the best man on their board, and that was Bradley Chubb. So credit to them for, for doing it and changing this defense a little bit. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm crazy in saying this, but I think Case Keenum is the fir- perfect fit at the quarterback position for them right now. I don't think he's going to be the quarterback for the next five years, maybe not even the next three. But for this year and next year, I think he fits what they're trying to do perfectly. You know what I mean? He's made some mistakes here and there. But I think we, what we've seen is that when the run game gets going, the pressure gets taken off of him. He can be a very good quarterback in this league. Yeah, I agree. I, we, I think we saw it last year with Case. He, he can make plays when you need him. He's not going to be the most outstanding quarterback he's not going to wow you with his arm or anything yeah. like that but he can make plays when you need him and that that's kind of just what you want out of the quarterback he's a, he's a little bit of an upgrade from a game manager yeah i think he's better than Tre- he's definitely an upgrade over Tre- trevor simeon there, there's no doubt about that but the team goes to baltimore next week to pr- face off against a pretty pretty good ravens defense their offense is staggered here and there but joe flacco has had his first uh, best first two games of the season in the past five years. He's looked like a different quarterback. Maybe part of that is feeling the pressure from Lamar Jackson, but I think this is going to be a real test for them. Seattle is in a little bit of a rebuilding mode. I don't see them winning more than six, maybe eight games. Oakland, I don't even know what they're doing in Oakland. They traded away Khalil Mack. Derek Carr continues to regress under John Gruden. They're not going to have a great year either. Yeah, Bal- that's, uh, Sorry, that's kind of the problem about playing those two teams first two games is they kind of look like a good team on paper like this yeah. will be a good matchup but I don't think they're going to finish with a very good record. No, I don't think I don't think the Raiders are going to provide much of a threat. I think as it stands right now, the team that provides the biggest threat to the Broncos is the Kansas City Chiefs. With yeah. how with how Patrick Mahomes They're, they're has better come than out. the Broncos. For yeah. Sure. I mean, whether the Broncos can beat them in a game is left to be seen. I think it right. could potentially happen, but as it stands right now, I think that Kansas City, as performance-wise, is a much better team. But Baltimore is going to be a test for them. I mean, when you look at the Ravens, yeah, they struggled against the Bengals. But they, they were good in their first game of the year. And they have some packages that could throw that defense off balance with Lamar. So I think this is going to be a good litmus test to see where the Broncos are at. I expected a lot more out of the Ravens against the Bengals. They did look good in the second half, but that first quarter, they just got blown up and then yeah. it was basically over after the first quarter yeah with four it was four touchdowns in the first half three of them to aj green and then in the second half they were playing catch up pretty much the rest of the way so i'm curious to see how they do when they go down to maryland but the one team in colorado that is set for first pitch in 20 minutes and a lot of people seemingly in the media forget about them undervalue them don't give them credit when the broncos had their hair day they were on the front page instead of this team which shocked me considering they're in the midst of a pennant race right now the colorado rockies now last week we taught we knocked down the rockies a little bit and then over the weekend they scored no runs over two games one run over three mm-hmm. against the giants who they've pretty much beat up the rest of the way i i mean they faced off against chris stratton struggles are kind of warranted then they go into L.A. and you think, you know, this is going to hype them up. This is their big chance of the series. It's like a party. But as, Drew, as the comparison Drew Goodman made that was appropriate, it's like going to prom and figuring out your date ditched you for someone else and is now taking a car service there. I mean, it just, it just you, know, you know what I'm trying to say. It just has the feel of a team that wasn't ready for the big lights and, you know, kind of thought they were there. And then they get there and 
They they just struggle a lot. Last night they kept pace with the Dodgers. They Nolan Arenado, the usually sure-handed, makes a couple mistakes. He oh, he makes a bad throw to first base, and then he on this on probably the strangest play I've seen all season. He flips it to the third baseman, Ham, Garrett Hampson, the shortstop who's taken who's done a good job, did a good job yesterday filling in for Trevor Story. Gets blocked by the third base umpire. And then Freeland backing up the play obviously can't get the ball in time, and he bobbles in. I mean, it didn't matter. I thought he was going to score no matter what. But still, it just seems like every time this team is turning a corner, something bad happens to them. And they end up losing that game in the 10th inning on a Chris Taylor who, I mean, I know L.A. hits a lot of home runs, but Taylor's not the guy who's going to go out there and kill you. So I think, I don't know, it just seems like there's bad omens going around that team right now. I'd agree with that. It- seems like everything that can go wrong has gone wrong in the last week or so. But they are still right in the middle of it. Yeah. And anything can happen, whether that's in the wild card race or in this divisional race. They have a big game against the Dodgers. If they get swept by the Dodgers... That's going to be rough. Yeah, there would be serious problems. But if they can win tonight, get this thing rolling into the next series... Against Arizona, yeah. Yeah, who has been struggling. Yeah. Has the last couple weeks, then I could see them turning around. They're, they're right in the middle. Yeah. Got to stay patient. If they lose too many games in a row, you can count them out. But I don't think you can count them out right now. One thing that they do need to do, they need to win the games that Kyle Freeland pitches. Straight, straight up. I mean, he's your best starter. We saw John Gray two days ago struggle. He's, he, he, Tyler Anderson, Antonio Sensatella, and to a lesser extent, he's been pretty good recently. Herman Marquez are pretty much not very dependable. Herman has done a great job turning the corner, so I don't want to put him in that late light. But Gray, Anderson, Sensatella, extremely inconsistent. They need, to, they need to win the games that Kyle Freeland pitches, and he put out another great performance yesterday. So they need to, they need to fi- figure out a way to score enough runs. Exactly, and that's the part that I didn't mention about these upcoming games is Gray, Freeland, they've pitched. So you're going to have to get it done with some of your back end guys yeah. which will be which has been tough for this team all year. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it's playing at Coors Field. Someone told me it's that's that's what the reason There's is. There's absolutely a Coors hangover what, just from ex- watching ex- their ex- expl- explain that to me though cuz I know the ball carries more and stuff like that, but it just seems like they're two different teams from from a hitting standpoint. I I can't really explain like what happens. I think it's psychological, yeah. but just from watching the Rockies over the years, every time they have a big homestand, which they had this was the longest homestand of the season before the Giants series, they went to San Francisco and they couldn't hit a baseball. Yeah. What, and that's just, that's happened so much over the year. Every time, over the years, every time it's a big homestand. It's always the first two games of the next series. Yeah. They just can't figure it out. Yeah. And I, I, and I think it's psychological. It's just being out of your comfort zone a little bit, and you, you just forget how to hit it. What, what worries fans about that situation, though, is if they conceivably make a playoff series, what are you going to do? You can't play every game at home. As it stands right now, they're fighting for the second wild card spot. So that game would probably be in Milwaukee or St. Louis. I think it'll be in Milwaukee. But either way, they struggled there, too. I mean... How do you how do you turn the corner? Well, and they've played really well yeah. on the road this year. That that is one thing. Statistically and we haven't seen speaking, much. this is the best road team in the past three years that right. the Rockies have had, which and is amazing. And I think it's they've tied for the most uh, wins on the road in franchise history. Yeah, they need to get one more. 
and beat that record. So hopefully that's tonight. But um, yeah, so they have done really well on the road, and that's part of the reason why they're right in the mix. But there's just something about it's it's usually the lengthy home stands. If you just come home for like three games and then go back out on the road, yeah, that's it's a good fine. Point. So playoffs isn't as much of a problem, but every time they have a long home stand, that happens. Now, one of the problems with this offense is not just in the fact that they're struggling to hit. It's that when they're at home, they play great small ball. You know what I mean? They'll get a guy on, they'll bunt him over, and then someone will get a clutch hit. Or, you know, you'll they, they, they get two men on, they – a little chopper to the right side, then there's a sack fly, and they, they've manufactured a run, so to speak. When they're on the road, they, ex- they rely exclusively on home runs. And, I, I mean, you can't do that because they don't have a lot of guys who hit a lot of home runs, you know, especially with Trevor Story out. Black Middle, go yard. Arenado, I think, is their best home run hitter. But they have a lot of guys who can get hits. A good contact hitter, so to speak. I think that's how they're going to they're gonna make it into the playoffs. they got a jump start. Good contact hitting and small ball. That's I think that's how they're going to win. Exactly. They they've been able to get win games late by doing those types of things by bunting people over and then getting that big hit. Yeah. And it seems like they're going to do it um, yesterday. Yeah. They had a guy on second. When was that? Ninth inning? Eighth inning? Yeah, ninth inning. Well, they had uh, Parra reached, stole mm-hmm. second. Yeah. Three straight outs and that's it. And then it. three straight outs. Yeah. yeah. And. They have been able to get that guy on second and bring him home. So, yeah, if they keep with that small ball, especially when they're on the road and not hitting hitting it very well, they're going to have to do that and find ways to win games. Yeah, that's that's something I agree with too. I mean, as as it stands now, they play the Diamondbacks and then they come home to play the Philadelphia Phillies and then they have series against the Nationals. Four against the Phillies, three against the Nationals. By the time you play the Nationals, they'll probably be mathematically eliminated. <laughs> the Phillies have struggled down the stretch a lot, and you have four games with them. I, I think they'll still, from a mathematical standpoint, be in it. But those are games you got to win. And Arizona, they're still, they're still in the mix a little bit. They've struggled a lot lately. But the Rockies recently have had their way with the Snakes. So you got to find a way to pull it out. You don't have that challenging of a schedule. Conceivably, they could ma- sneak into the playoffs losing two out of three or getting swept by the D-backs and having a great home stand. They've been a good home team as of lately, but you got you got to you got to beat the teams in front of you in the division to get there. I mean, you can't be scoreboard watching for the re- the rest of the way. That's what I'm trying to say. I agree. I think they'll be able they do play some mediocre teams. The Phillies Yeah. Have been awful. Last, awful, like, terrible. Yeah, Nationals, they're they're gonna have been given up by the time that the Rockies play them. But I mean, if and the Diamondbacks have. If you think about it from the angle as the Nationals being a team that has nothing to lose, being a spoiler and playing their playoffs mm-hmm. at the end of the regular season, we've seen it in the past. I remember a couple years ago the Rays ruined the Yankees' shot at making the playoffs. It's that's, ha- that's divisional. There's not much rivalry between the Rockies and Nationals. It's kind of... I don't know. I think it could be a little bit of a I could see why... That's why you would want to motivate your team. I just... I, I don't know. We'll you, see that when you, we get you, there. you think... So you think they'll be able to beat the, sweep the Nationals no problem? We'll see when we get there. We'll see when we get there. Maybe we'll take it one game at a time. I do want to uh, cover some recruiting stuff before yeah, we go. Yeah, let's, let's talk recruiting now. I uh, wrap up with that. Yeah, there was a question about it, so I wanted to go over this. Um, so, first of all, Tariq Luckett, he, he was the one that committed last week, and I'm very excited about this guy. They've, 
had two wide receiver commits so far, Braden Huffman Dixon. Tariq. Yeah, he was the he was a four star recruit for any of you guys. Yeah, know. and yeah. Tariq Lockett is rated as a four star on twenty four seven, not composite because Rivals has him really low, but um, that doesn't matter because this kid, he's big, he's fast, and he has incredible ball skills, and I think that Chev could turn him into quite a player. He's yeah. like a I would probably compare him to Tony Brown on the team right now. Okay. Maybe a, like an inch or two bigger than Tony. Yeah. I, I like the big body receiver concept because Chev has a proven track record with those guys. But is he an instant impact player? Because I know a lot of people thought. I don't, yeah. I'll already answer your question. I don't think so. Don't just think because so, of yeah. how, how uh, many receivers Chev likes to recruit. Yeah. These guys, these receivers can't be ready when they come in freshman year. The only one. That might be able to do it is if they're able to get Kyle Ford, the five-star receiver. That's is that, a, guy is that, that a possibility? Make, a, make an impact. They're, they're right in it with him. It, it'll be a battle to the end. He's supposed to uh, command at the Army All-American game. So. Which is in January. Probably. Yeah, okay, in, so in January, and then he'll sign in, in the late signing period. Who, who else is in, in it for him, for um, Ford? It'll be Washington, USC. There are some others, but I think it's going to come down to a three-team Pac-12 battle. And then I also want to cover the official visitors this weekend. Yeah, we had it with the bye week and whatnot, we had a lot of uh, recruits up here in Boulder. Yeah, so um, the first one, Jason Rodriguez, who is currently a USC commit, big offensive lineman. He could flip, and he could be an instant starter with the way this offense <laughs> Yeah, he could goes. absolutely be an instant starter. He's rated 120 in the top 120 in the nation. Um, he really likes USC. I think that's pretty obvious with what has been written about him. But if Clay Houghton or his offensive line coach were to get fired, then I think that's where this thing gets really interesting. Yeah. And so that all depends on how well USC does this I season. I don't see Houghton getting fired at this point. I did hear that he had a really good time in Boulder. Uh, he liked everything about it. And I, I do think it's going to be his plan B. Yeah. He actually asked the coaching staff, um, to visit. It yeah, wasn't the okay. coaching staff that was trying to get him to visit. And okay. then Isaiah Rutherford, Northern California kid, four-star cornerback, he visited this weekend. He has everybody in the mix. The, the big ones, Alabama, LSU, Notre Dame, yeah, all, all those South schools, schools are, yeah. are interested in him. But he really, really liked Boulder and just the way that the college town is set up. He said it, it was way nicer than LSU or Alabama. I heard that from yeah. a source. So I definitely think that CU is in the mix for him. It, it would help if they get a, a cornerback to decommit because they yeah. just have too many of them. And then Darius Robinson, um, really good things from him too. So I think they all had a very good weekend in Boulder, and I wouldn't be surprised if they get a couple commits from who visited this weekend. This could be perhaps one of the best recruiting classes and the best recruiting class since 2017. We'll keep you fully updated on that going forward. And it'll be interesting to see how that whole situation plays out. We've enjoyed being with you today on the Howell Stern Show, and we will get back to you next week. Have an excellent week, Buffs fans.